Welcome to Historias, the Spanish history podcast. I'm your host, Breton Rodriguez, and I'm speaking with David Graysburg about the development of Jewish identities during the medieval and early modern periods. Amongst other topics, we will look at the origins of Jewish communities in Europe, the creation impact of Judeo conversos in medieval Liberia, and the development of a unique Jewish civilization and identity during the early modern period. But first, a little information about our guest. David Graysburg is a historian of early modern and modern Jews. To date, his research has focused mostly on the Western Sephardi diaspora of the 17th century. In particular, Graysburg's writing approaches questions of religious, social, and political identity as those questions shape the lives of so-called new Christians or conversos from the Iberian Peninsula who became Jews in exile. He has also written about Judeophobia and the culture of Spanish and Portuguese inquisitions, marginality and dissidence in Jewish and Ibero-Catholic societies of the 17th century, ethnicity and religion amongst the Sephardim from medieval times to the 1700s, and converso trading networks in the Atlantic. More recently, he has published research on Jewish ethnic identity and Zionism amongst American Jews. David, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and just kind of jump into this. Um, and I do want to kind of start by just giving a little bit of background for our audience. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about the early development of Jewish communities in Europe? Um, when do we first see these communities develop? And also, what are some of the ways that they change as we move from antiquity into the Middle Ages? So uh, Jews were citizens of the Roman Empire once the Roman Empire had essentially taken over uh, Judea. And so it stands to reason that we would find uh, Jews in the major urban centers of the empire, first and foremost, of course, Rome itself. So uh, some uh, listeners might be familiar with the fact that there are catacombs in Rome that um, have some uh, have traces of Jewish uh, Jewish habitation, right? Uh, things like um, the uh, seven-branched candelabrum, the uh, menorah. Uh, a very uh, common symbol of Jewish culture and, and sovereignty. Um, these, uh, these catacombs probably date back to the last years before the Common Era. If not, then certainly they're from the early years of the Common Era. You know, the, the Romans, of course, were preceded by the Greeks as the world empire builders of the West or from the West. So we also have information about Jews who lived in the uh, Hellenic basin of the Mediterranean. Uh, we were talking before you started recording about Turkey, and it just brought to mind that I believe one of the earliest traces of synagogues found uh, from about the time of the Hasmoneans, the so-called Maccabees, is in a southern Turkish village. It's, a, it's an entablature with, again, with a menorah. Right, which is probably like a gate to uh, to some sort of Jewish communal building, probably a synagogue or something like that. Anyway, so after 70 CE, which is when the the Roman Empire crushes a very bloody uh, Jewish revolt, the dispersion of Jews accelerates. Many Judeans are are actually uh, we presume were they're deported in chains to to Rome and to various areas of the empire as well. At least one Roman historian records the anecdote that the price of Judean slaves at the markets in Rome uh, was lower than the price of livestock. This to give you a sense of, you know, the kind of the very, um, very dramatic entry of many, many Judeans into, into the West as slaves. But of course, there was already a Roman Jewish community. That's the nucleus of uh, what is now a, a well-defined Jewish sub-ethnic group, I, and I say sub-ethnic because I consider Jews to be an ethnic group, hmm. uh, they're, they're known as the Italkim or Italiani. Now, in places like uh, the Iberian Peninsula, there's very little uh, documentation of, Jewish, of, of a Jewish presence. There's, for example, a second century tombstone, I believe, in, in Merida. Uh, but, you know, to what extent Jews were there, were they settled as a community, in what capacity, that, that's very difficult to say. So, so the, the, the bulk of the information comes from later periods. We have, for example, a chronicle by uh, Achimatz ben Paltiel, uh, so-called Book of Genealogies, from Benevento, 
um, not just the, the town, but the, the region in southern Italy. And that's, that's from, from the, uh, from the uh, 11th century, uh, but it, it actually, I mean, at least it purports to record events from about the 9th century. So it's, I guess, a good guess. It's, it's a good uh, supposition to say that there were Jews in the uh, smaller urban areas of the Italian peninsula by about the ninth century. Of course, the 900s also see the, the almost, you know, uh, surprising appearance of a well-developed Jewish community under the Umayyad Caliphate and Al-Andalus. Hasdai ibn Shaprut becomes the, you might say the prime minister, the wazir of, of the caliphate there. And he dies in 970. So presumably, you know, this community didn't come out of nothing, but we don't have documentation prior, prior to, to his heyday. There are some Gothic rulers in Europe, for example, the Ostrogoths, right, who exchanged letters with Jews in the 700s, but not much is known about the communities as such. We know plenty before the Umayyad conquest of Iberia. We know specifically that the uh, Visigothic rulers of much of the peninsula, much of the Iberian peninsula, had a, a very pronounced concern with Jews. According to their legal code, they forced Jews to convert to Christianity, number one. And number two, they discriminated against them even after they had uh, converted. But Evidence directly from those communities, if they existed at all, is scarce to non-existent. So, for example, in Jerusalem this, uh, this summer, I was talking to a, an, an early medievalist, and he said, well, you know, some, some of us regard the Visigothic Code as a kind of a, as a mental exercise in othering, <laughs> othering non-Christians or people who don't come originally from, from Christianity. Uh, I, I'm not so sure that there was nothing there. No, no Jews in Iberia, but you know it's curious that we still don't have any information about communities as such. Well, you also have all the legends, yeah. right, about the fall of Toledo in the, in the initial conquest, right? I mean, there are all these legends that say it's the Jewish community that like opened the gates and kind of let them in and all that. So there's definitely, in popular imagination, at least, a, a large community. Oh, certainly, there. certainly, yes. I mean, uh, there is a, uh, a strand of Jewish memory which places Jews in the Iberian Peninsula in the times of Solomon. But of course, this is more legendary than anything else, and that's to put it very charitably. But then, of course, yes, there were there were communities, some perhaps even sizable communities before the Muslim conquest. There are those who argue, well, these weren't really communities of Roman era Jews, but rather or primarily of Berbers who converted to Judaism and who then became the majority of the local Jews. I, I, I'm in no position to, to judge those theories. I mean, those who make them uh, look at language. Just to give you an example, Chazdai ibn Shaprut, that's, that's a, not a very common name in Hebrew. Um, Chazdai, yes, but not Shaprut. And so there, you know, there, there's a lot that's sort of shrouded in the mist of time. But let me just, you know, as a kind of a way, a way to solve this, I say that by the 900s, you, you have three developing, if not fully developed, uh, Jewish culture areas in Europe. One is, if I've mentioned before, it's the uh, Italianim, right? The, the Jews of the Italian peninsula, even though they're not unified, they, they belong and they associate with particular states in the Italian peninsula. Then there's also the Judeo-Andalusian or Judeo-Andalusi community under Islam and then gradually under uh, Christian rule as well. And then by the uh, 10th century, at least there's in the Rhineland and in Northern France, there's the Ashkenazi group. So uh, that's where these uh, communities uh, become distinct, right? The, the ninth, 10th centuries. And then you asked me about changes, right? Uh, from yeah. the early, from the early years to the early uh, misshrouded years to what you might recognize as the Middle Ages. So the changes had to do first and foremost with legal status. I mean, from being citizens of a rather cosmopolitan empire, Jews now become tolerated subjects at best. And that's per the, uh, you know, the doctrines of St. Augustine. Of course, locally, 
conditions for Jews vary rather dramatically. So in some places, they're more or less left alone. In other places, they are uh, massacred. For example, in the First Crusade, uh, the Jews of the, of the Rhenish community uh, of the Rhine Valley are almost decimated, right? A big uh, watershed and a, and a very formative event for Ashkenazic Jews. Under the Carolingian and Ottonian monarchs, uh, a few centuries earlier, you see a development whereby Jews, Jewish individuals are granted charters, usually charters, royal charters to conduct trade, to serve as um, uh, diplomatic representatives. Eventually, past the time of the Ottonians, as the Carolingian Empire sort of breaks up and becomes a mess of little uh, aspiring estates, uh, we see a development of, of charters issued to entire communities, usually the families of prominent Jews, let's say physicians that a local landlord may want to, um, to employ. And then these charters become the basis of more or less uh, permanent Jewish communities. Under uh, the terms of classic feudalism, uh, Jews become what were known in Latin as servi camere, so servants of the chamber, servants of the Lord's chamber, or serfs of the chamber. L literally, they were the property of their landlords. Yeah, And increasingly, they were associated with uh, the most important landlords, the kings, the bishops, uh, those who were seen as their chief protectors and their owners. Internally, Jews developed, I think, two main approaches or positions with regard to the culture, the predominantly Christian culture of their neighbors. One approach was to be relatively open. Another approach was to be relatively, you know, exclusive and closed off. Mm -hmm. And uh, the difference has to do with antecedents. So generally speaking, the Jews of the Iberian Peninsula are much more willing to borrow cultural material from their surroundings and to do it very consciously than the Ashkenazic Jews. Mm. Ashkenazi Jews are fewer in number. They're settled as very, very tiny uh, familial or nuclear families, let's say clusters of nuclear families uh, surrounded by Christians. They feel that they uh, can be swallowed up at any time. Um, by contrast, the, the Jews of the Iberian Peninsula, even though they're coming under, under Christian rule, a very aggressive, uh, let's say, uh, um, crusading Christian rule, uh, they nonetheless have the uh, the memory of having lived as large compact groups uh, organized as clans in the in the countryside and in the cities of of Muslim Iberia. And so this gives rise to different kinds of what the, the Yale historian uh, Ivan Marcus calls inward acculturation. In other words, the selection of non-Jewish cultural material, its insertion or their insertion, uh, the insertion of these elements into the Jewish community and their domestication as, as uh, you might say, integral parts of Jewish life. Interesting. Thank you. I think you did <laughs> that's so much information. I think you did a great job of giving an oversight from kind of looking back at antiquity all the way into the Middle Ages. Um, to kind of stay in the Middle Ages and stay with these, these communities, so you talked about kind of the way that they're acculturating their surroundings, the way that they're engaging with their surroundings. I'm kind of interested in the way that they would think about themselves as well. Do we have any kind of evidence of how they might think about themselves, how they would describe themselves in this period? In particular, I'm thinking, do they see themselves as kind of practitioners of really a specific confessional identity? I know later we see this term, the law of Moses. Is this something that they'd be thinking about and using during this period? Or is it more about kind of specific cultural practices? Or, I mean, and also how does this relate to ideas about lineage and ethnicity as well? Do we see these ideas already in this period? Is it more, more cultural at this point? That's a very good question. It, it, you know, it can lead us in all kinds of directions. I think we have to look at the groups, uh, you know, these uh, culture areas in their own terms. But if I want to draw some, you know, some broad brush strokes, I would say that there's a paradox, right? On one hand, under, let's say, Charlemagne and Louis the Pious, Jews, uh, as far as we can tell, uh, look like their neighbors. They sound like their neighbors in the sense that they are not speaking any, quote unquote, Jewish language. Uh, and yet they, they continue the patterns of self-perception that their ancestors had cultivated and that actually date back to uh, antiquity, right? What I mean is that Jews saw themselves as Judean Israelites. 
uh, here we are talking about Jews, but the sources really don't talk about, the, the Jewish sources don't talk about Jews in Hebrew, Yehudim. They talk about Israel. Israel is the proper name of the Jews to this day. They saw, saw themselves as exiles from their land, and they certainly didn't have anything called Judaism. Judaism or Judaismos is a Greek term that the uh, that the likes of Alexander the Great and his you know and his minions uh, used to define the culture of the Judeans of the of the of the, uh, the state in in the Near East that they conquered. What I'm saying is that medieval Jews had no no religion. If by religion we mean something like a confession. That, and one that is very much founded on theological propositions and defined by particular ways of worship. Certainly Jews had ways of worship, they still do, but uh, what they had, what they understood they had uh, was an all-embracing way of life or law that was unique to their, to their nation, to their ethnic group, to their people. They didn't have a name for this. Uh, in some rabbinic sources, it's called... Uh, the life of Torah. Uh, sometimes it's, it's, you know, you can understand that with through phrases like to assume the yoke of heaven, you know, the, 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 the obligation to carry out certain commandments and so forth. But, you know, to be Jewish was essentially to be born into and to uh, join, if you so chose, uh, as, a, as an adult, uh, a Jewish community, namely a kehila, right? A normative, normatively configured, uh, internally autonomous cluster of households ruled by halakha, by Jewish law. Now, everything about halakha is and was intended to remind the Israelite Judeans or the Judean Israelites that they were not at home, <laughs> that they were exiles from the wars of the Romans, to, to quote a, a famous 19th century rabbi. And that their obligation was essentially to maintain mental connections, obviously amongst each other, but also with Jews in other areas, uh, and to observe mitzvot, commandments, that were both biblical and extrapolated by the rabbis. Uh, again, no creed, no, no systematic philosophy to speak of, right? There were Jewish philosophers in the Middle Ages, uh, you know, influenced largely by Greco-Arabic philosophy. But uh, it, it, it was only they who tried to systematize all of Jewish culture. And uh, they were, uh, um, I don't want to say rejected, they certainly weren't rejected, but they were criticized by their, their own peers. In fact, belief is not required by halakha. To be Israel, you don't have to believe in anything in particular. This isn't the sine qua non of, of community as it is, for example, in Islam or in, or in Christianity, in various forms of, of Christianity. You are essentially uh, Israel because you, I mean, in legal terms, because your mother is Israel. But then it's not as though everyone had a, uh, this is my go-to, uh, you know, joke. It's not as though every Jew had a, a geneal genealogy printed and, and laminated in the back of their genes and could pull it out and show that they came from, you know, they came from Mother Sarah or something like that. No, Jews were, I mean, sociologically speaking, let's forget about halakha for a moment. Sociologically speaking, Jews were Jews because they learned Jewish culture within a Jewish setting. And even halakha is cognizant of this. So for example, yes, there is the, the, the rule of metrilinearity, right? The status of the mother transferred to the, transfers to the son so, or, or to the daughter. So if the child is, is a child of, a, of an Israelite, then, you know, then he or she is an Israelite. Fine. But then uh, the Talmud also uh, has laws regard or, or, or in the discussions regarding foundlings, which uh, assert, among other things, that if a foundling is uh, spotted in a Jewish community and the baby is bundled in a particular way, then for most legal purposes, the child can be presumed to be Israel. So again, this is the question of the context making the Jew not so much the genealogy per se, or the belief, or the profession of any ideas, or the way of worshiping a deity. Let me also, before I, I, before I let you poke, poke my, uh, my thoughts, I just wanted to point out that this was not simply a, what I'm describing was not simply a, a mental ideal. It was actually bolstered for many uh, centuries by the existence of 
uh, Gaonic academies. These were Talmudic academies in the Galilee and in Babylonia. Their leaders sent to the, uh, to the various corners of the diaspora responses to legal questions that were posed to them from the diaspora. Moreover, until fairly late, the Jews in Baghdad had an exilarch. This exilarch was essentially uh, the head of all Jewry throughout the world. It was a, a, the, the office of the exilarch could only be occupied by a descendant of the line of King David. And so, in a sense, to be an exilarch meant that you counted with a kind of uh, retroactive biblical legitimation. What I'm saying is that Jews didn't really learn to think of themselves as potential Frenchmen or potential Germans or potential whatever, uh, Greeks, uh, Romans, what have you. They learned that they were Jews, that they were uh, is Israel, actually, and that their, their, uh, their goal was to sanctify reality through the performance of, of divine commandments, and in so doing, earn God's favor and then achieve redemption. And the redemption was... Uh, it was necessarily going to involve repatriation in the land of Israel and the homeland. So I, I feel like there's there. I mean, first of all, thank you for that. There's there's so much information there. I feel like there's so many different ways that I could I could take that. And I do have other questions I want to get to, but but first, just kind of a couple things, really, really quickly. It seems like with this idea, where kind of this this identity is coming from. I mean, a, a your birth and also the community that you're born into. It seems like this would make conversion really hard, right? I mean, it's it's really difficult to kind of convert when this religion's not based on belief, right? You could believe it, but if you're not born in this community, raised in this community, it seems like you're not Israel in this, in this formulation. Is that is that right? Is that is that correct? Or uh, well, yes and no. I mean, for Jews to step out of the communal fold was almost unheard of, right? It was almost unimaginable. It was possible, right? It was an option. Uh, accessible to uh, to uh, deeply disgruntled people, but the possibility of bringing people in from the outside that was there very early on. In in rabbinic law, there's a there's a process of uh, giur, right? Now people who want to draw facile analogies translate this word as conversion. One doesn't really convert to Judaism or to First of all, because as I said, there's no such thing as Judaism. This is a, a sort of a misnomer, number one. Number two, giyur means something like naturalization or becoming a dweller with Israel. Right. So you, you're still technically, once you become re-educated within a Jewish community, in essence, you, you replicate the socialization process of people who are born within the community, you are nonetheless still considered a ger, a stranger. Now, for, for all intents and purposes, you're Jewish, right? You, you're treated as a Jew, you're, uh, you're, um, you're given the same privileges, the same rights, or most of them anyway. And uh, in fact, uh, rabbinic uh, commentaries are such that, uh, you know, if you're a, a ger, a voluntary um, naturalized member of the community, then, then God actually likes you better. Why? Because you, you had the choice and you took it, right? Whereas others, you know, were born into it. So it's interesting. There was always porosity in the community, but uh, but you're right that uh, you know that that to to step out of of the communal embrace was incredibly radical. So I mean, I I, I find that really it's it's fascinating. This is maybe jumping ahead, but particularly thinking about some of the charges laid against the Jewish community later on, right? This idea of proselytizing, which is just it seems is so far removed from what we see here, right? Right. But we can we can get to that in a little bit. I did. I am also really just intrigued. Even this term Jew itself, right? This idea of kind of tying it not so much to a religion, but tying it to Judea and to this this part of what today is Israel, right? And so I'm just kind of wondering, even when do we start seeing this term being embraced or widely used? Is this what outsiders would call um, Jews in the Middle East? Is this kind of an outsider term that then later gets embraced, or how how does this work? Uh, pretty much. I mean, the term Jew itself. J-E-W probably comes from, I, I don't know, but I, I, I would be willing to bet that it comes from the King James Bible. In other words, it's an English term. But uh, terms like Eudaio, uh, uh, Eudaios, uh, you know, all these are, are Greek, which are then adopted by the, uh, by the Romans. Now, it's not that uh, Israelites themselves didn't use uh, these terms. They did. Obviously, there was a state of Judea mm -hmm. and later a Roman province of Judea, right? But the traditions 
are not such that Judeanness is something that's sort of uh, to be taken for granted or unproblematic. So just to give you an, an idea, the rabbis of the, of the Talmud scratch their heads when they read in the book of Esther, the biblical book of Esther, that her kinsman Mordechai is called a Judean, I, I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly, but it's, he's, essentially the text indicates that he's both a Judean and a Benjaminite. So the question is, well, what the hell does this mean, right? Is he a person from Judea who happens to be of the tribe of Benjamin or what, right? But it's only in those types of discussions that Judeanness uh, really uh, is explicit. Other than that, when, when uh, the rabbis of the Talmud are discussing the people, they're talking about Israel, Bnei Israel. So if we go into the Middle Ages, and we read the local, uh, you know, rabbinic um, decisions and, and discussions. We read phrases like, "Oh my gosh, it's it's um, it's indecent for a daughter of Israel to have her kinsman uh, refuse to give her a dowry because she is poor, to to grant for her to essentially create for her a dowry because she is destitute." You know, so Jews regarded themselves as children of Israel. <laughs> I, I know, having been reared in, in a predominantly Yiddish-speaking environment, that in Judeo-German, which is Yiddish, Jews refer to themselves as Yidden, right? Which is Juden, right? It's, it's, you know, but that is a matter of history, right? I mean, it's late medieval history, because that's when I would say a Judeo-German uh, crystallized, or it's even early modern history. In any case, it's not Hebrew proper. I mean, it's written in Hebrew characters, but it's not Hebrew, right? So Jews use the word Jew to talk about themselves and predominantly to talk about themselves to others who are associating the term with the New Testament, with St. Paul and, and with St. Paul's uh, you know, ruminations about him being a Judean, Israel after the flesh, not, not like the Gentiles whom he wants to attract, who will become. Uh, Israel after the spirit, but even there you see there's Israel. It's not it's not Jews. So, but he does talk about Judaizing. Paul talks about Judaizing, right? Behaving like a Jew. So this for him was a bad thing. And so that's where those terms essentially become important within a Christian framework. Okay, and so we see these terms used in a Christian framework throughout the Roman Empire. Is that kind of a fair thing to say? As kind yeah, of yeah, absolutely, by... okay. absolutely, yeah. Okay. If you were the if you were the uh, procurator of Judea, you're a procurator of Judea, not the procurator of Israel or the caretaker of Israel or anything like that. Yeah, it was Judea. But if you're talking about a Jewish community, say in Rome in the first century CE, are you going to talk about the Jewish community, or would you say it's kind of the Judean community? I mean, how would you if you're a Roman? A, yeah, Roman. Oh, oh, if you if you're a Roman, you would talk about the Judean community. If you're a a uh, um, if you're a Jew. If you're a, a Judean subject of the empire, you may use both. Okay. Israel uh, as sort of the de designation of your ethnos and Judean as the definition of your, let's say, your provenance or your political status or something like that. So I think this really, those really kind of feeds nicely into my next question, um, which basically kind of as we often think about and talk about these Jewish communities in the Middle Ages, often there's this emphasis on kind of looking at it from the outside, right? And often as we do so, we think about, we, we talk about the way that these communities may have been oppressed or persecuted, um, particularly if we're looking at these Jewish communities within Christian territories, right? I mean, you mentioned the Umayyad community, Umayyad Caliphate in Iberia, which is obviously a different situation, talking about the Jewish communities in places like Babylon and whatnot. But I'm just kind of wondering what you think about this, this lens that we're using, right? Do you think that this is a productive way that we should study and talk about these communities? Or do you think we're perhaps kind of limiting the agency that we allow these communities to have if we're always kind of focusing on the way that they're kind of treated by outsiders or treated by other kind of communities outside their own community? Yeah, so that's another great question. I'll say parenthetically that there is a, let's say a trend in recent historiography to try to, so to speak, rehabilitate the diaspora, yeah? To, to try to look at the, the, the glass as half full to focus on uh, moments of great commensality between Jews and their neighbors, the, the long durée, you know, 
during which there the the episodes of violence and persecution were limited and and therefore to try to redraw memory in such a way that it doesn't emphasize um destruction and persecution and so forth i think though it would be foolish to whitewash or to unnecessarily underplay persecution because you know the effect of persecution on history is is significant i mean uh, persecution is pivotal let's say that for example you and i live in a neighborhood and um you know for for the most part we just wave at each other you know you from your garage me from my garage and you know you go to my uh, garage sale and i go to yours or whatever and we chat about the kids and you know so on and so forth but then suddenly i don't know i go crazy and i burn you out of your house god forbid you know uh, what are you going to remember well you, you certainly will remember the garage sale but uh you're probably going to remember the the uh the 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 violence the fire as something absolutely traumatic right mm -hmm. so we have to give due weight to that that said i think your question already entails a critique and i think it's the appropriate one to the extent that you portray jews from the outside and you view them exclusively or almost exclusively as victims then essentially you're saying they have no agency they're 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 uh, two-dimensional characters they're not even the protagonists of their own story right which is completely false i mean i i study jews in order to understand how they behaved why they behaved the way they did under conditions that were peaceful and under conditions that were very difficult that's the interesting part uh if we don't study that then we're doing something that i for which I criticize the U.S. Uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C., right? I don't know if you've been to it, but it essentially is a kind of shrine to the Nazis. You know, it 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 it, it documents and it and essentially commemorates techniques of destruction of European Jewry uh, by the Nazis. Uh, it's not so much about the culture that was lost. So I I don't think that that's a I mean that's certainly to to teach large audiences look, don't be a Nazi, and this is what happened during the Second World War, is a worthy cause. Mm -hmm. But historians of the Jews, this is, not their, this is not their mandate. Their mandate is to talk about the Jews who were killed, right? Who they were, what they talked about, what they thought about when they weren't being murdered, and even while they were being murdered, right? The point is, who were they? And what does that, what does that teach us or anyone else? Again, I think violence and persecution have to be given their due, but we have to have a clear, a clear conception of who and what it is that we're trying to understand and document. I, I think that's a really that's a great point. So yeah, kind of really focusing on the cultures themselves as opposed to looking at just the destruction of the culture, those who are perpetrating the destruction, but actually looking at what it is that that is being destroyed. And I think that's right. I mean, if you look, for example, at the let's say the uh, the uh, main Holocaust Memorial Museum in Israel you find a somewhat different narrative than you find in the U.S. Memorial, right? You find a, 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 an exhibition that, first of all, it's not as rich in terms of its uh, depiction of the Nazis. Hmm. And secondly, it talks about uh, Jews suffering and also Jews, what is called the gvura, their sort of their, their heroism and their martyrdom, right? So it, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily a perfect lens through which to view things or perfect interpretation, but I, I mean, definitely the the... the the emphasis falls on the Jews, not on not on their killers. And so um, for me, those two museums, even though I'm talking about the, the modern modern era, uh, are not good models. I, I would be much closer to the Museum of the Jewish People in um, Tel Aviv, which shows you a very broad um, say canvas of uh, distinct subcultures uh, and continuity between those cultures of the diaspora. Um, so I do want to kind of change gears a little bit and kind of move a little bit from looking at the Jewish community in the medieval world and really kind of change gears to what you've kind of talked about and written about recently with regard to Judeo-conversos. Um, so I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about who they were as a community and also just a little bit about how they came into being, particularly looking at the, the context, the situation, and their origins in medieval Iberia in particular. Judeo-conversos, as they're known in... in um... Castilian and Judeo conversos in um, Portuguese, probably in Galician as well. Uh, these were people who um, uh, descended from Jews, but who were Christians. Now, how do they come into being? 
the Reconquista was completed in 1492, right? When Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And this was the, you might say the crowning achievement of a crusading society. In that society, a cultural, political, you know, theological tendency that uh, some historians call anti-Judaism crested, right? Anti-Judaism was basically the idea that Jews were not simply blind and stubborn and incapable of uh, uh, comprehending the truth of Christianity, but that they were actively hostile towards Christianity and therefore imperiled uh, Christian souls, uh, salvation, etc. They were plotting to somehow overthrow Christianity. So from this conception, it came out a conversionist policy. The conversionist policy had uh, what you might call a learned uh, angle or learned uh, um, dimension and a popular dimension, and they were both deeply intertwined. Long story short, from 1391 to 1415, a series of riots and um, official conversionist events, in other words, events uh, designed to intimidate Jews into becoming Christians, uh, result in the conversion to Christianity of some third to two-thirds of Iberian Jews. Iberian Jews uh, in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries were still the largest community of Jews, or they, they comprised the largest community of Jews within a single, let's say, geopolitical unit. And, you know, granted, Spain was not Spain. It was Castile, Aragon, uh, Navarre, etc. But, you know, it could be considered something like Hispania, right? Roman Hispania. Two thirds or a third of the community were lost to baptism, usually uh, undertaken under duress. So the first Judeoconversos were the people who converted. Eventually, however, uh, the term Judeoconverso came to apply not just to the original converts, but to their children, their grandchildren, the great-grandchildren. In other words, people who were born into Christian communities, baptized shortly after birth, and who, at least in, in theory and by law, were uh, Christians in good standing, who uh, were deserving of all the rights and privileges of other Christians. However, I think we can say that uh, Iberian anti-Judaism was a victim of its own success, in the sense that if the problem was, well, Jews have the wrong culture, it's a, it's a, it's a hostile culture, it's an anti-Christian culture, and the solution is to rid them of that culture. It turns out that conversion didn't actually cause many, many uh, Christians to think, oh, okay, yeah, we can now integrate these, these folks. Yesterday's enemies, the hated Jews, were now supposedly brothers and sisters in Christ. You can see how that's difficult to, to swallow if you've been taught from an early age that Jews are very, very dangerous, that they killed uh, the Son of God or they killed God or whatever, and so on. So, um, so there arises a, a very, very strange situation in which, you know, the, the, the problem of Judaism, as the church called it, has gone a long way to being, quote unquote, solved, and yet most Christians, including many of the converts, only see it as having been deepened or com complicated. Does that help? It, it, it does. It does. I mean, I'm, I'm actually just kind of listening to you now. I'm, I'm thinking as well about really what it means to be Jewish in a medieval context as well, right? I mean, where it's more kind of cultural, it's more kind of the, the cultural community that you're born into. In, in that case, I mean, baptism doesn't actually really fundamentally change that much, right? Particularly since it's not I mean, what kind of this, the way that Israel would see itself during this period would not be based off kind of what they profess to believe. It's more about kind of the culture they're part of, and that culture isn't changing. Correct. And that's what's so, so distressing for uh, the people who have led the charge for conversion, right? I mean, consider the following scenario. Okay, let's say that you and I both live in a in a Jewish neighborhood. Oh, in in let's say in Catalonia it would be called a calle, a calle, right? A street, a Jewish street. Okay. Mm. So the riders come and they sweep through the through the street and they beat people up and they drag some to the baptismal font or they let them understand that if they don't walk there, quote unquote, of their own accord, then they will be harmed. All right. So half the street converts to Christianity or you know goes to the baptismal mm. font. And half the street doesn't. All right, the the riders leave, or they get get tired, and they you know they slink back into their holes. And what's happening then? Okay, so 
maybe a lot of the converts are completely convinced that they have to do their best to become Christians, but they still live next to their Jewish spouses, to their Jewish relatives. They still have business relationships with fellow Jews. They're, as you as you pointed out, you know, the entire cultural world does not simply get erased because they have uh, had some water sprinkled over their head and, and, and the priest intoned some solemn uh, words. And, and so, so this this actually um, destroys the the notion that baptism is efficacious, right? That baptism actually transforms the soul of the of the new of the new Christian. I, I'm not suggesting that the new Christians, the Holy Conversos, were actually trying very hard, or not trying very hard, to be Jewish, whatever that meant. I mean, that mm-hmm. that's something that over which uh, historians have argued for decades. I'm only saying that, you know, in sociological and anthropological terms, cultures are not, first of all, they're not equivalent to one another, right? They, 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 they have, they, they're based on different assumptions. And secondly, they're not easily disposed of, you know, through some ceremony. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And it's really, it's, it kind of puts this whole period of conversion in kind of a different light as well. Um, but one thing, I mean, in some of your recent work, you do talk about this, how looking at this, the advent of these Judeo conversos does end up kind of fracturing Jewish identity in medieval Iberia. So I'm kind of wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this rupture would have taken place and also maybe what some of the, the consequences of it might be as well. Absolutely. So the rupture that I've been describing so far um, is one that uh, that really hits the conversionist Christians in the face, right? But it also hits the unconverted Jews, if you will, in the face, in as much as now the old boundaries between who's in and who's out are essentially gone, or they're or they're uh, they're so blurred that it's very difficult to uh, to define who is a Jew and who's a Christian, right? For the Christians, right, the the new Christians are people who look like them, who go to church like them, and as I mentioned before, who are still socially and culturally Jewish in other ways. From the from the point of view of Jews, the question is: Well, you know, these are are they are they anusim? Are they people who have been forced to do something that they would not otherwise do, or are they meshumadim? Are they destroyed ones? In other words, people who are self consciously uh, abandoning the ways of our of our cult of the ways of our ancestors, right? So rabbis have a heck of a time dealing with this. And the, the first generations, uh, at least so is my impression, they tend to excuse the behavior of the converts. And they uphold, for example, the very old Talmudic uh, principle that although a person, although a Jew may sin, then he or she is still Israel. Okay, fine, fair enough. But then you have the reality of gradual Christianization and true blue Christianization. Right to the degree that you grow up among Christians and you have the same rights and privileges that they do, and you go to the same uh, places to worship as they do, then effectively you become acculturated as a Christian. And so, what do you do with these people? Are they still Jewish? Because in terms of uh, halakha, they may still be uh, Israel, or are they actual? You know, are they turncoats who should be shunned? That I'm talking merely about, let's say, formal definitions. You can imagine that on the streets, this was complete chaos because, mm-hmm. you know, most, most, I would say, most human beings don't really know the law, don't really care very much about the law. They learn to distinguish uh, groups and, and uh, to identify borderlines in, in practice, right? In social behavior. Well, social behavior now is very complex. You have people who are equivocating between two cultures. You have people who are, you know, uh, trying very hard to blend into one culture uh, and and abandon another one. There are people who are trying to, you know, escape their predicament and maybe leave the country, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So so this is is what uh, David Nierberg calls a crisis of classification. I call it a crisis of identity. I mean, I, I think you do a really nice job of just describing the chaos of this. And I think that's really, it's it's really fascinating. It's also interesting to look at it from the Jewish perspective as well. We're kind of looking at this question of, are they are they still Jews? Are they still part of the community? 
or not. I mean, I think often when we talk about the converses, we're looking at it from kind of the Christian perspective, right? And, and we do see these terms that are often used as well, right? So like Marano or crypto Jew that get kind of thrown around quite quite a bit in, 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 in that period. I mean, this is definitely what we see with the Inquisition, right? Where they're trying to root out these kind of crypto Jews as well. Um, so I was I was wondering, I mean, I know this is kind of very hard to do in general and kind of in broad strokes, but could you tell us a little bit about what a lot of these terms are referring to, whether it's Morano, whether it's crypto Jew, and then also kind of what you think of kind of how how widespread this this practice might have been in this period, right? I know that's kind of a, a hard, a hard kind of claim to make one way or another, but just kind of if you give us some some ideas. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you're right to to uh demand that I address um, terminology. I, I often try to do that when I write about conversos because the terms are so problematic. Luckily, I've also thought about, you know, ways of estimating the incidence uh, of Judaizing as the church uh, and therefore the Inquisition defined them. So let me try to address this. Um, first, you have the term judeoconversos, which as we've seen is, it literally denotes converts, but was actually applied to non-converts, to baptized Christians who descended from converts. Okay, so it becomes a kind of a misnomer and a way to, to tar the descendants of Jews with the imputation that they come from bad uh, from bad origins, right? That they that they and their ancestors might have been, uh, you know, phony Christians. Okay. Now, a generic term for phony Christians in Iberia was uh, Judaizers. In other words, Christians who think and behave like Jews according to the church, not according to what whatever uh, Jewish culture said it was to be Jewish, rather according to the church, right? And Judaizing is a term that I think calls from, comes from St. Paul. And I think he used it to define uh, Gentiles who were, let's say, um, following some aspects of Jewish law that Paul thought were not suitable for Gentiles, that only people like himself who were Judeans should observe. So from this historical term, Judaizers, comes the scholarly term crypto-Jews. I find that particular term extremely problematic. Crypto-Jew simply means somebody who's a secret Jew, right? The problem or the main problem with that is that traditionally, there's no such thing as being a secret Jew. One cannot be a Jew secretly because Jewish civilization is not dualistic. It does not distinguish between a secular realm and a religious realm, between an inside and an outside, between mind and body, between Caesar and, and, uh, and God. It, it simply uh, treats Jews as people who are the practitioners of a culture that is public, collective, and historical. Public in the sense that, you know, it didn't occur to the writers of the Hebrew Bible and the uh, authors of the rabbinic uh, canon that anyone would ever have to hide his or her belonging to this people called Israel, right? I mean, maybe there's some theoretical discussions here and there, but I mean, this is not the main thrust of, of, uh, of, of Jewish law. It's historical because uh, Jewishness is supposed to be realized, to be fulfilled in history, even redemption itself which involves you know, uh, the reconstitution of the Judean polity, uh, the, uh, the advent of a Davidic monarch who will rule righteously from Jerusalem. All these things are supposed to happen in history. And it's a collective civilization in that it always assumes that the best place to do Jewish is a, is a community, right? A, Jew, a, a properly configured Jewish community. So the idea that somebody can, can hold Jewishness in his or her heart is incredibly tenuous for the pre-modern centuries, is almost unimaginable. And it is really a construct that fits a Christian understanding of conscience and of religion, right? Religion is something that you believe in. Religion is something that's fulfilled within a timeless and ahistorical realm a spiritual realm, be it the heavens or the hereafter or 
the inner recesses of your heart or something like that. It, the, the national uh, group called Israel is very different. And so for me, there is it, to, to really to argue that there was anything like crypto Judaism is not correct. Now, were there patterns of converso dissidents, religious dissent, you know, anti-Christianity based, however clumsily, on new Christian readings of the Christian Old Testament? The answer is yes. Okay. But this is what we might call crypto-Judaism. It's not what Jews actually lived. Jews never lived like that. I mean, I, I think that's kind of a great overview of the terminology. I'm, I'm also interested in this idea where we can't see this kind of dual identity in this problematic term of crypto Jews, right? We, we can't have this idea of a dual identity. We, we, that, that's impossible. Um, but it is something that we see often talked about with Judeo conversos, right? This idea where they may have this kind of dual identity. They may have this kind of almost dual consciousness to bring in some later terminology. Um, is this something that we could kind of see with the Judeo conversos, this type of kind of dual identity? Uh no, I, I think so. I think you can have double identity. You can have triple identity. You can have quadruple identity. What you can't have is crypto Judaism. That's 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 a very important difference to to mark. You certainly have double identity among conversos because they, unlike any other population in the pre-modern centuries, perceive the possibility of shifting back and forth, of existing in a sense and being associated publicly with both cultures. Right. So this is this is new. Right. Because uh, in the in traditional cultures, identity is supposed to be integral. Uh, it's supposed to be um, unambiguous. It's supposed to be final and it's supposed to be imposed from above, by the way. You know, it's God who gives you your identity. It's your parents. It's the the uh, the learned person who wears a particular collar or a particular hat or what have you. So. Um, so, yeah. So the idea that you can kind of you can uh, exhibit the traces of various cultures is 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 very um let's say causes anxiety that's why among other things uh the way to for the uh iberian crowns to get rid of uh morisco culture is to suppress things like music uh and, and, and forms of dress and certainly the arabic alphabet so by the same token the holy office of the inquisition starts to, in a sense, develop a kind of a, a quick and dirty uh, ethnological description of what it means to be Jewish, right? And it comes up with supposed markers of Jewishness that actually have nothing to do with, <laughs> with being Jewish. So for example, oh, if, if, if such and such doesn't eat pork, well, that's uh, proof positive or that's, you know, it's, it's uh, circumstantial evidence that this person is Jewish, is a crypto Jew. Well, I mean, <laughs> there's nothing in canon law that says that you have to eat pork to be a Christian. By the same token, if you if you if you eat pork, according to halakha, to Jewish law, you may still be Jewish. <laughs> you know, so so uh, there's a there's a there's a confusion here. Back to the theme of chaos, right? That's uh, founded on the wide gap that develops between normative definitions of identity and sociologically and anthropologically realistic definitions of identity as potentially multivalent. In other words, not just dual, but actually quite diverse, quite multichromatic or uh, polychromatic. Sounds great. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. That's it for part one. And we'll be right back for part two.